on the road again. Sing it with me, Shrek. I can't wait to get on the road again. Why don't you take a picture of the last slugger? You're driving me crazy, too. I'm seeing things here. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today we're talking about travel. We've talked about travel many times. We've talked about vacations. We've talked about going places. I love to travel. I love to experience new things, see new sights, explore distant destinations. I like to get out there and see and do things. And yeah, I'm a big sucker for the tourist trap things. The world's biggest ball of twine. The Corn Palace. I've actually been to the Corn Palace in South Dakota. Because it's the Corn Palace, why wouldn't you go? There's a lot of places like that that I like to go to. I've been to south of the border. That's on Route 95 between North and South Carolina. The ultimate tourist trap. I've been to Wall Drug, which is in South Dakota. Out on the edge of the Badlands. I love those tourist trappy things. But I also love the big destinations, too. I always wanted to get to the Grand Canyon, finally did. Always wanted to see Mount Rushmore, I was finally able to do that. And I think all of this love for travel comes from when I was a kid. I've talked about our family vacations before, and my dad took us everywhere when I was very young. When I got into my teen years, that's when he settled down in Chincoteague. That was our vacation destination for many years after that. But when I was a little kid, we went to New Hampshire, we went to Niagara Falls, we went to Washington, D.C., We went to upstate New York, Lake Champlain. We had all kinds of little places that we looked at and explored that were really kind of cool to see. And so I've always been interested in looking at the really kind of cool to see places. Now today I'm not going to focus on the places that I've been as much as I'm going to talk about the preparations to get there and the things that you used to do for travel or used to see for travel that aren't around anymore. Because travel has changed over the years. Some of the changes are as a result of the changes in technology. Some of the changes are because society has changed. Some of the changes are just because things change. But I remember as a kid, one of the first things I learned was the difference between a hotel and a motel. And a hotel is kind of like an apartment building. It's a tall building, several floors. Everything's enclosed in one building. So you go in, you check in at the desk. They send you to an elevator. You go up in the elevator to floor 17 and take your room on 17th floor. Motels came into existence when cars started becoming more prevalent. A motel is basically a motor hotel. And think back to the early days of hotels. If you look at some of the old movies or read some of the old books, a hotel was in the middle of town. You came into town, you needed a place to stay, they had a building in town, and you'd stay in the hotel. When cars started to come into existence, people would be driving from city to city or state to state, and these little motor hotels would spring up. They were called motor hotels, motor inns, all variations on the same concept. You would drive into this little lot and pull your car right up in front of the room. And you could have a little motel with 10 rooms in it and make some money, depending on where you were. Motels now are Motel 6, Super 8, Red Roof Inn. But in the early days of travel, there were all kinds of roadside motels that you could find as you were driving along the roads. And when I say roads, I'm talking about the state roads, not the interstates. You know, Route 80, Route 95. You could do 70 miles an hour on them to get from destination to destination. Before those existed, which was back in the 40s and the 50s, all of the roads were state or sometimes federal roads, but they weren't interstates. And depending on what state you live in, you have your own major state routes. In New Jersey, 202, Route 1, Route 9, those are all big major routes throughout New Jersey. 
Route 1 actually goes from Maine to Florida. It's a federal highway, not an interstate, but it's a federal highway, and there are hotels and motels that dot Route 1 all the way from Maine to Florida. And back in the day, if you were driving along that road and you needed to stop for the night, you could find any number of little motels. And depending on the state, depending on where you were, the motel might have some facilities, like a little playground for your kids if you were traveling for vacation, or a little postage stamp-sized swimming pool. And I remember traveling as a kid, I loved these little motels. They were great. Dad would check us in, we'd park in front of the room. If it had a pool, we could go jump in the pool. It was great. I remember back in my college days as I was driving back and forth between New Jersey and Ohio, there were times where I wanted to get out of Ohio so badly that I would leave at the end of my last exam on a Thursday night. Now, it was a 10-hour trip from Ohio to New Jersey, and if your exam lets out at 5, I knew I wasn't going to be driving any 10 hours to get home in one night. But I also knew that in Pennsylvania, you could get off the interstate, Route 80 is the way that I went, you could get off Route 80 in any number of small towns in Pennsylvania, and there were all kinds of hotels and motels you could stay at. And the beauty of the motels is they were a lot cheaper than the hotels. So for a broke college student coming home at the end of final exams who wanted to get home, rolling into Danville, Pennsylvania at 10 p.m., you're not looking for the Hilton. You're not looking for the Sheraton. You'll take any bed. And I mentioned Danville on purpose because that's one of the places that I stopped. It was pretty much halfway between where I went to school and my parents' house. And I learned over my years of driving back and forth that in Danville, Pennsylvania, there used to be a place called the Bald Eagle Motel. Might have been the Golden Eagle. I think it was the Bald Eagle. Yes, this is one of those mom-and-pop motels. Not a chain, not a red roof, not a Motel 6. It was a rustic little motel that I decided to stay at because it was well within my budget. $19.99 for a night. And in the morning, they had a free continental breakfast. Now, when I was a college student, I had no idea what a continental breakfast was. I just saw free breakfast and said, hoo-hoo, let's go. But for 20 bucks and a free whatever it was, I was good. I was happy. And that's the beauty of the travel back in those days. You could pull into the Bald Eagle Motel and have no problems, no fears, no concerns. It wasn't like a fly-by-night no-tell motel where you go for a quickie in the afternoon. This was a legit travel motel, a legit business. And their continental breakfast was basically a platter of donuts and pastries from a local bakery and a pitcher of coffee. For me, a starving and poor college student, this was heaven on earth. And my first experience with a free continental breakfast. So I loved it. Now in hotels and motels, now you can get free breakfasts all the time. That's part of the things that they do. That wasn't always the case. So the cool thing about the Bald Eagle Motel for me was the free continental breakfast. Awesome. Now, the Bald Eagle Motel was a neat little place, and it was reminiscent of a lot of the hotels that I stayed in when I was a kid. And I remember the setup. They were all basically the same. Two or three uncomfortable chairs in the middle of the room. A big round table with magazines you never wanted to read. Always that local coupon magazine. Come to Frank's Hunting Shack and get three free shotgun shells. They'd have that rack over there on the wall. Travel brochures and flyers for every business around. And, of course, the desk clerk. And behind the clerk, there would be a wall rack full of keys. There'd be a key for every room. And on every key was a little key fob, plastic key fob with the logo of the motel right on it. Bald Eagle Motel. Now, that's two things that you're probably not going to see anymore ever again. Number one, the key fob. And number two, the key cubbies. 
Those key fobs were really cool because they had the name and the logo of the motel on it, but it also had a return address. It would have the address of the hotel on it, and there would oftentimes be a little sticker or even embossed in the key fob, guaranteed postage paid. So what would happen is, if you happened to leave the motel with the key in your pocket, forgot to turn it in, you could drop it in the mail, and the post office would deliver it back to the hotel. It was just a little convenience they baked into the key fob. And this is back in the day when you actually needed a metal key to open your doors. Nowadays, with the electronic keys that you scan, you probably won't see a key or a key fob ever again. But back in the day, the metal key and the key fob was the thing. Now, the key cubby, that was that rack. It was behind the front desk clerk, and they'd hang the keys in each of the cubbies. And this goes back to an old tradition from the hotel days. Back in the early days when people would travel, when you'd leave your room, the custom was you'd leave your room and you'd turn your key into the front desk clerk, who would hang it up in the hook for your room. So if you were in room 17, you'd give your key to the desk clerk. They'd hang it in the cubby for 17. It was an easy way for the desk clerk to take a look over his shoulder and see if room 17 was occupied, if you were there, if you were not. You know, in case you got a message at your hotel or in case somebody was looking for you. Of course, the problem with that is anybody who walked into the motel could see if you were in your room or not. So if the key was hanging in 17, those would-be burglars would know, let's go check out room 17. So that's why you won't see the key cubbies anymore. Not only do you not have the keys, but it's kind of an advertisement of who's there and who's not, what rooms to go check out if you're one of those would-be burglars. But it was always a kind of a cool thing, I thought. The other cool thing they used to have in motels? Magic fingers. It's exactly what you think. Okay, maybe it's not. The magic fingers on motel beds was basically just a giant vibrator that vibrated your mattress. I remember as a kid going into the motels and they had this little machine attached to the headboard of the bed. Basically what it was was something that vibrated your mattress and supposedly it was supposed to help you relax after a long day of travel. Now, I don't know how the stupid thing worked, but I do know that if you lay on your bed and you put a quarter or 50 cents, depending on where you were staying, into the Magic Fingers box, you could lie on your mattress and the mattress would start to vibrate. And as a kid, I thought this was the coolest thing. Wait, I can get a massage just lying in bed? I mean, it's not really a massage. Your mattress is vibrating. Now, the Magic Fingers on the motel bed kind of became a joke in TV and the movies. But before I ever realized it was a joke, I just thought it was a cool thing. But I think because it became a joke, you can't find Magic Fingers anymore. Nobody wants to be associated as the motel with the vibrating beds. It's not a cool thing anymore. Imagine that. But as a little kid, hopping on a bed and being vibrated, that was cool. The other thing that I remember, and this is back from my days of checking out at the Bald Eagle Motel, you could pay as you left. You didn't need a credit card to stay. You could drive into the Bald Eagle Motel, sign the register, which you also don't see anymore, and I'll tell you about that in a second. Sign the register, put your name and address down. You would pay for your room when you got there, but they would have to have you check out to see if you had any additional expenses or if you'd stayed for an extra day. But they didn't charge you up front, and they didn't charge you a deposit. You would simply go in at the Bald Eagle for $19.99. You'd lay a $20 bill on the counter, sign the register, fill out your address. You'd have a room. Then at the end of your stay, you'd go to the front desk. They'd check to see if you'd incurred any phone expenses, because phone calls were never free in the room. They would charge you a dime for a local call, whatever the long-distance fee is for whatever long-distance calls you made, and then you'd get a bill for that at the end, and you'd have to pay it. And if you stayed an extra day, you'd pay the extra day at the end. 
and you could pay cash. You didn't even need a credit card. That's back from the days before people would skip out on their room. You know, when people used to do what they were supposed to do, pay for services they received, rather than take advantage of a situation. There was a time like that. But because of the people who did skip out, there's no more pay-as-you-leave. You pay before you even get there. But I mentioned the guest register. Now, you may have seen something like this in an old TV show, an old movie. I've actually signed into a hotel using the guest register. And what that is, it's a giant book. And there's a line for your name, a line for your address. You just sign in, put down all that information, and you're good to go. Obviously, the problem with that is it's kind of a public document. In this day and age where people are worried about privacy or being stalked or getting away from people they don't want to be with anymore, having a public guest register like that is probably not the safest, most private thing that a hotel can do, which is why they no longer exist. But I remember signing into the guest register. It made me feel like a grown-up. I guess because I'd seen it in so many movies. You go to the hotel, sign in the register, you're an official guest. I mean, you're still an official guest when you check in with your credit card. It's just not as cool, not as old school, not as classy as that old guest register on the front desk. Of course, without the guest register, you can no longer check in with an alias either. So if you're on the run from somebody, you can't check in as Mr. and Mrs. John Smith. I mean, I guess you can if you go to the Notel Motel down by the bus depot. But checking into a hotel as Mr. and Mrs. John Smith, or Donald Duck, or Ronald Reagan, or whoever you want to use as your alias, you can't do that anymore. They actually need you to give your name and a credit card. So no more fun aliases. They require things like photo ID. Kind of defeats the fun of having an alias, I guess. The other thing they've kind of done away with at hotels and motels is the branded merchandise. And once again, it's because people can't be trusted. Now, when I talk about branded merchandise, here's how I came to learn about it. My parents had a bath mat that we used in the bathroom with Holiday Inn on it. Now, I know my parents. I am 99% sure that they didn't lift the Holiday Inn bath mat from the Holiday Inn. Number one, because I don't think we ever stayed at a Holiday Inn. Too expensive. And number two, it's not the way my dad worked. My dad was as honest as the day is long. So I can't imagine him ever lifting a bath mat. What I'm sure happened is a bunch of towels came up at an auction or a garage sale. My dad bought the box of towels for 25 cents and in amongst the towels was a Holiday Inn bath mat. But therein is the problem. People would steal the branded merchandise. Back in the day, they had Holiday Inn towels and bath mats. Every motel had its own ashtrays with the logo in the ashtray. Hotels and motels would have hangers in the closets. And the hangers back then were solid wooden hangers because you wanted to have strong hangers to hold people's coats. And the hangers would have the logo for the hotel. I know this because my dad picked up a box of hangers at an auction one year. And in amongst the hangers are some Sheraton Hotel hangers with the phone number and the address of the hotel. So they branded everything back in the day, but people would steal them. And you can see jokes about this in some of the older movies. People would pack the hotel towels and bath mats and ashtrays and hangers in their suitcases and treat them as free souvenirs. So you don't see too much of that anymore. You don't see too much branded merchandise anymore. And the hangers that they do have are completely useless because they don't actually have hanger hooks on them. They fit into those slotted notches that they have hooked to the rod in the closet. And that's because people would take the stuff. But I remember all that stuff. I remember all those little details from traveling. And there's a lot of other little things that I remember from traveling that we just don't do anymore for a variety of reasons. Now, I didn't do this so much as a little kid, but when I was a teenager and into my 20s and into my 30s, every trip I would prepare for the same way. 
I would always take a paper list of addresses and phone numbers of family and friends. Because you never knew. I mean, I had an address book, but I didn't want to take the whole address book. Now, obviously, I knew my parents. But any other family members, any friends, I would take their addresses and phone numbers with me, just in case. I'd have it in case of emergency. But more importantly, I had those addresses for the postcards. We got into this habit when I was a kid. I remember my mom and dad sending postcards when we were on vacation. So for years, whenever I traveled, I would always get postcards and send them back home. Getting postcards was an important part of every trip. I'd send postcards to my family. I'd send postcards to my friends. So I had to have the addresses to make sure that the postcards would go out. Now people collect postcards for the pictures that are on them. But when I was growing up, the pictures were important, but you would send the postcard with a nice little message. We're having a wonderful time. Weather is great. Food is awesome. Wish you were here. That was a basic postcard that you'd send to your friend, and it was just an acknowledgement of the fact that you were thinking of them and that you wished you could share the time with them, even if you were just being nice about that. Because most of the time when I went on vacation, I was trying to get away from everybody. By the way, postcards have been around for ages, and some of those vintage postcards from destinations as mundane as Tallahassee, Florida, are worth big bucks. Because a lot of those old postcards have pictures of things or structures or buildings or places that no longer exist. The old state capitol building. If it's been renovated in the past 50 years, those old pictures are worth something to people. Yeah, the message on the back is nice for the family. But collectors like that old stuff for different reasons. Now, not every old postcard is worth more than a nickel. But some are. But they're also nice to have as pictures that you can't necessarily get of a place you visited. But I would always try to find good postcards to send to family and friends. Now, when's the last time you got a postcard? I can't remember the last time I got a postcard. We get text messages now. Hi, I'm here. We arrive safe. Hope you're okay. And maybe during the course of a visit, you can instantly text somebody a picture of your crab nachos with a message, Oh, these are awesome. And that's all well and good. But there was something cool about the postcard. It was like a message out of the blue from a friend of yours who happened to be in Virginia Beach. It was kind of a cool thing. The other thing that I remember doing that we don't have to do anymore, making sure I had enough small change for phone booths. You never knew when you were going to need to call somebody. Call the hotel, we're going to be late. Call your parents, I'm stuck on the road. Call whoever, you always needed money for the payphone. I've talked about payphones in the past. Payphones were everywhere, and it was the only way you could communicate. And because the hotel that you stayed at would charge you for all of the calls that you made and would often charge you a premium, if you wanted to call home or call a friend or call anybody, you would often go to the lobby or go to the payphone at the laundromat or at the restaurant and make your calls there because it was cheaper. But to do that, you had to have plenty of change. When you made a call from a payphone, you had to have the money in the form of quarters, nickels, and dimes. So every trip involved having a handful of coins always available just in case you needed a phone. You don't have to worry about that anymore. The other thing you don't have to worry about? Maps. If you were driving someplace, or even if you were flying someplace and then driving when you got there, you'd need a road map. You'd need that so you could find your way around. There was no Waze. There was no Google Maps. You couldn't just punch in your destination on your phone and have somebody guide you. You had to plan your route. Now, AAA, the Automobile Association of America... If you were a member, they would prepare map packs for you. They were called triptychs. And if you told them where you were going, they would produce a little map booklet with your route highlighted and all of the directions spelled out for you. 
And then you would page through it, and every page would be another 10 miles of the journey. And it would show points of interest, where to turn right, where to turn left, and they'd give you the map. I mean, I say give. You had to pay for the membership, but as part of the membership of the AAA, you could ask for these trip ticks. But if you weren't a member of AAA, you would go to the gas station, or a bookstore, or sometimes the local pharmacy would sell maps. And you would pick up the local map, and then you'd figure out where you were going. At one point, I had purchased the Truck Driver's Road Atlas because I was traveling all over. So the Road Atlas had maps for every state, and I learned how to read a map, and I learned how to find my way around. I still have that Road Atlas, but I haven't pulled it out in years because nowadays, just plug the address into Google, and boom. Another thing that we used to do to get ready for the trip, making sure we had enough film for the camera. You always wanted to take pictures of your trip. Everybody does. That's one of the reasons you go on the trip, to take pictures so you can remember. But the only way to take pictures was with a camera, and for that, you needed film. So you would have to go shopping beforehand, because it was always cheaper to buy it at the local drugstore than at the tourist trap gift shops near Niagara Falls. You learned that they charged you three times as much for the film at Niagara Falls than they do at your local drugstore. So you'd want to plan how much film you were going to bring. And then if you were flying, you wanted to make sure that you protected the film from the x-ray machines, because they would x-ray your bags. So you'd either have to carry it on with you and ask to pass it through, or have a little lead-lined bag in your suitcase to protect your film, because the x-rays can screw with your film. And I've talked about photography before. Back in the day, you could get film rolls of 12, 24, or 36 pictures. Think about that for a second. You're going away for two weeks. Let's say you want to spend $10 on film. That's probably two rolls of film with 36 exposures each. So 72 pictures for 10 bucks. And that doesn't count the developing. With all of us taking pictures of everything we see and do these days, imagine trying to limit your two-week trip to 72 pictures. I know people who take 72 pictures in a day. Years ago, you had to very judiciously decide what was picture-worthy. That's why you don't see a lot of pictures of food from back in the day. Food was not picture-worthy. Not one time in my life when I was growing up did I think of taking a picture of my cheeseburger and fries. A picture of Niagara Falls, that's picture-worthy. A picture of a Whopper with cheese, not so much. All right, I've got one little tidbit of trivia that I'm going to share with you to close out the episode today. And I kind of stumbled upon this, and it's not 100% true for every airline, but it's one of those weird little facts about computers and airlines and travel that just fascinated me. If you book a seat on a plane, it is very, very, very unlikely that you'll ever get a seat in row I. You might get A, B, C if you're in first class. You might get F, G, H, or J, K if you're in coach. But you don't get row I. And the reason for that? Computers. When they first started doing seats on computers, the I looks too much like a one. So a company called the Digital Equipment Corporation decided to eliminate the I when doing plane reservation systems. And so the planes stopped creating a row I. If you look closely, if you're picking your seats on a plane, you'll see H, J, K, no I, because the one and the I are too easy to confuse. And now with that knowledge and a buck, you can go get a cup of coffee at McDonald's. I know, I'm just full of useless trivia. It sticks in my head, what can I tell you? Anyway... That's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. As always, I appreciate all of the time that you spend here, and I appreciate the fact that you continue to support me. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves. 
and I'll see you when I see you.